When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Sometimes a book appears exactly when it's needed most. That is the case for today's book, The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Welcome to the Van Leer series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel. Surprised by a terrorist attack of immense proportions and unspeakable savagery, Israel is engaged in a defensive war against a fanatic genocidal terrorist organization, which cynically embeds its war machine inside residential neighborhoods, including under hospitals and schools. Meanwhile, back home, Israeli civil society is calling on all its social and emotional resources to deal with rockets aimed at its cities and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of evacuees including families of those held hostage, babies, and little children among them, while most able-bodied men are fighting the war. That's why we are particularly pleased to have Saul Singer with us today. Saul and his co-author, Dan Senor, are best known for their book, Startup Nation, which explained Israel's phenomenal rise as a high-tech center and became, for many, a synonym for Israel itself. Today, we warmly welcome him to talk about his new book, The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Saul Singer, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. Good to be here. Saul, um, how did you come to recognize that Israeli culture has strengths that some other modern nations lack? What measures reflect that strength? So... We actually, uh, this is kind of what we notice and what gave us the impetus to write the book is on the one hand, of course, uh, my co-author Dan Senor is sitting in New York and I'm sitting in Jerusalem and he's seeing this conversation in the United States about things like deaths of despair, which are deaths from suicide uh alcoholism, substance abuse, the opioid crisis, and, you know, those skyrocketing. He sees teen suicide rates uh, also spiking, going up uh, in recent years, the the CDC declaring it uh, a crisis. Um, He sees growing loneliness and disconnection and polarization in society. And I'm sitting here in Jerusalem, and I'm not seeing these kind of maladies, these kind of sicknesses of modern society. 
what I'm seeing is solidarity, a sense of belonging, a feeling, a sense of purpose, um, and a sense that uh, that the individual is not just it's not maybe not the highest thing. It's certainly not the only thing. And in the West, you have basically you have individualism completely unbalanced with anything. There's no counterweight. Here you have a sense of the group that it's not just about you. It's about larger things than you. And, you know, the the epitome of this is the culture of service that uh, that uh, peaks in the military service, but it's not just military service. It's something the culture is telling you from when you're quite small, when you go to say uh, youth movements here, which are very popular, and the concept of gibush, which we write about in the book, which doesn't really exist in in English in the same way, and and it's basically bringing people together in groups. And Israeli society is constantly, you know, trying to do gibush. Uh, one thing striking difference where you see this is uh, in a classroom. The striking phenomenon, you know, I obviously grew up in the United States, moved to Israel, and, you know, our kids are going to school. And we, you know, realized very quickly that in a classroom in Israel, if the teacher feels that the, it's not a kitami gupeshti, a classroom that's unified, kind of has a, a sense of identity, then the teachers are upset, the kids are upset, the parents are upset. You know, and what is this? I mean, in, in other countries, the class isn't even a unit. And here it has to be, it's it's not only a unit, but it's an important one in some ways. The, the making in a unit is even more important than than what you learn. And, you know, this is crazy, and this is just in, in classrooms. But you see it throughout. You see it, again, in the youth movements. Uh, but you, you see it in every network that Israelis are in. And that's another thing uh, we see with our kids and everybody sees, which is they have these strong networks of friendships. Uh, and that's a huge you know, source of connection and meaning. And even more so, I would say, is the family in Israel. We have a, a chapter in Israel, in the book, which has the, I think the chapter title, that's my favorite. And it's actually pretty apropos at this exact time because it's called Thanksgiving Every Week. And it's basically saying that we have this institution in Israel and it's institution. It's not just a religious thing. Uh, it's it's like a national rich ritual that cuts across every type of, of Jew, uh, no matter how secular. And that is Shabbat dinner and Friday night dinner. And what happens on Shabbat dinner is you go to your parents' house and you bring the kids. And so you have three generations. And maybe you alternate between the different set, the two sets of parents, of grandparents. Uh, but you better show up, you know. Uh, and, you know, it's like having Thanksgiving every week, not just the, the family not getting together, you know, twice a year. But 
almost every week. And these are the things that are the bulwark of Israeli society. And they keep us together and they act as sort of guardrails that we argue prevent Israel from spinning apart, even though we've gone through crisis after crisis. You know, we think of the judicial crisis, which is was pretty extreme, but it's not the first. I mean, we've been through starting with the Altalena, you know, started there's some even before the state and then going to German reparations, uh, you know, the first Lebanon war, uh, the, the, the murder of uh, the assassination of the prime minister, one side, half the country blaming the other side for the assassin assassination of the prime minister. Imagine if if when JFK was assassinated, that it wasn't blamed just on one crazy guy, that one half of the country blamed the other. Um, and that's, you know, that was the situation. I remember thinking, how could we recover from this? And, you know, and then you have disengagement in 2005, tearing the country apart. So, you know, time after time, and we have these, these schisms in Israeli society between, you know, uh, religious and non-religious, between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi, you know, between uh, all these schisms. And yet we we have this, um, you know, vibrant democracy that in some ways shouldn't even exist here. Uh, so, th- you know, those are the kind of things we point to that make Israeli society very different. And we argue uh, stronger and healthier and, and this actually shows up in, in real metrics. And that's another reason that led, led us to write the book, because it's not just, you know, uh, subjective. Um, you see that Israel's life expectancy uh, is one of the highest in the world, uh, higher than, say, Germany, France, and Sweden, but uh, you know, much higher, say, about four years higher than the United States. Um, you see that on this deaths of despair figure uh, that you can get these numbers from the OECD. And Israel has the lowest of all these countries, including the countries that are supposed to be the happiest, you know, that are at the top of the World Happiness Report ranking, which is the, the Nordic countries. And by the way, what is Israel doing there? Last year, it was number four in the world. What are we doing with Sweden and Denmark and Norway? Um, and of course, you know we're we're not very happy right now. Um, but we most of this book was written before the judicial protest, and it certainly was written before the war. And we were saying again that we have these guardrails. We were saying that this sense of human connection which humans need we're social animals if we are too separate from each other if we're not connected if we're lonely loneliness actually there's a study shows that uh, that being lonely can be as unhealthy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day um and you know so these things are not human they're not built we're not built for these things and in israel has uh, less of it, and that, we argue, may be the difference in what makes us healthier. Um, and of course, 
the biggest metric of all, or the most striking difference is in the fertility rate. Every single rich country in the world has gone below replacement, which is 2.1, which is the, the line uh, where below which you start aging and shrinking as a population, and above which you are young and growing. And we're young and growing, the only rich country that is. And it's not even close because the OECD average is about 1.6 and Israel is about three. Yes, Israel is a very pronatal country, no question about it. But I, I don't want to get too far away from one of the earlier things you mentioned, which was longevity. That really struck me because um, even in normal times, Israel is a high-stress country. People smoke, people overeat, people drive like crazy on the roads, and it's so ethnically diverse that you can't explain longevity by genetics. So why do you think Israelis enjoy relatively longer lives? How does it work? So, you know, there's a famous uh, study, one of the longest studies ever conducted. It was conducted, it's still going on at Harvard. Um, they started with a few Harvard students in the, I think it was the 1930s or something, or maybe it's uh, the 40s during the war. Um, and they, they, the idea was to take kind of normal uh, or relatively not you know, not to study as normally is the case uh, in psychology is mental illness, but study normal people and try to, you know, watch them over many years and see what are the factors of, of success, of happiness, if there's anything that correlates. And what they discovered is that the thing that made people healthier and happier, both healthier and happier, was one factor which was relationships, which was connection. And again, so we, that's exactly our sort of hypothesis is that it's not because our health system is better than the top health system in the world. You know, it's, and we're bathed in stress. As you said, we should not be so healthy. Stress is not healthy. Um, and yet we are. And, we think, and we can't prove this, but we think that probably the fact that Israelis have this human connection are not so isolated, are not so lonely, and also have a sense of purpose. I really believe that meaning and purpose, and Viktor Frankl uh, famously wrote about this in Man's Search for Meaning, that just like we need connection, we need meaning, we need purpose. And Israelis have that in a way that I think that is not to the same extent, not on the national level, not so widespread as in Israel. And that, too, makes us healthier and happier. Tell us more about that. What purpose do Israelis feel that they have? And how does it encourage resilience? Sure. So one thing is that Israelis are connected to Jewish history. Even as you're growing up, you know, as a child, as a high school student or whatever, you're conscious of the fact 
that your grandparents say came from somewhere else. And there was a history before Israel of persecution. There was a long history. And that Israel, you know, isn't just there. It's it's a there's a it's a project. It's a ongoing project. Uh, we have another chapter called uh, "Pushing History," that comes from a conversation we had with Micha Goodman, the philosopher and public intellectual, um, where he makes the point that there are there are big countries that have a big impact on history, but if you're from China or the U.S. or something. You don't have a feeling that you can have a lot of impact on that. You feel like one kind of small person. And there are small countries where you might feel like you have more influence. But those countries don't have a lot of impact on history. And the unique thing about Israel is that it's a small country with a big history. A, a history literally of biblical proportion that's still in formation. It's it's a country where we we don't debate about tax reform, we we debate about you know who's a Jew, about you know how we live together in this really kind of diverse society, about democracy, about you know uh, with the the big debate that we were just having, uh, what is a Jewish and democratic state, um, about the conflict. How do we survive here in the Middle East? Uh, these are enormous issues, and everybody's a part of them. And that's why we part of why we have, you know, very high rates of, of voting participation. And do you think that that feeling of having had a long history and one with a lot of persecution, uh, and now still being part of shaping the state to be the best it can be. Does that figure into the uh, point you mentioned before about the relatively higher uh, birth rates that are common in Israel compared to other modern countries? I think it does. Um, by the way, I have to mention a lot of people, when you say we have a high fertility rate, they think, oh, it's the Haredim who have, you know, very large families the ultra-Orthodox, but it's not. Because when you look at a typical Tel Aviv family, the, the kind of normal number is three kids. Two is a little small, four is a little above. And for for if you have four, that's kind of extra credit. You know, people admire that. In what society do you get kind of higher social status or, or whatever if you have another kid, uh, which... Uh, which actually, in a way, connects with what you just said, because there's a sense that more children are good. You know, just like Israel, for 75 years, we've always thought we need more people. We celebrate immigration. We, um, if you, I, I, one thing that struck me as an immigrant is that at the end of the year, on the radio, you hear announced two figures which are kind of nice metrics of kind of success during the year. And one is the number of immigrants, how many came in this year, and we want that number to be higher, which itself is unusual. Um, and the second is the height of the water in the Kinneret, um, which, 
which actually is less of a less of a thing now that we have plenty of water. Um, but yeah, there's a sense that Israel needs more people, that the Jewish people needs more people, and that uh, you're not going to have an extra kid just for that reason. But it does add a kind of sense of of, of goodness, like you're you're doing your part, like you're that it's a good thing to do. Uh, when you were writing Startup Nation, was there anything in that high-tech world that struck you as playing a role in Israeli resilience? So I w- in this context, I would look at it in, in connected to another aspect of this, which is optimism and kind of belief in the future. Again, with fertility, the ultimate bet on the future is to have children. Uh, so that's another indication that we're we're positive, we're excited about the future in a way that other countries are are maybe not, and that again is connected very much with the fact that we're young and growing. I mean, if you're aging and shrinking, what is your attitude towards the future? The future doesn't look that exciting, and also these societies. As you become older and shrinking, you're going to be less dynamic. Um, And that goes to Startup Nation. We're a very dynamic society. Um, And so I I think these kind of strengths contribute to us becoming Startup Nation. Uh, And I think Startup Nation contributes to our optimism and uh, sense of the future, because what are startups? They're building the future. That's the whole idea. Finally, Saul, uh, if you were writing your book today, after October 7th, what would you change? So I think the obvious thing we would have written about is the incredible coming together we've seen of Israeli society. I don't think that it's, it's very hard for someone outside of Israel to understand what's going on here. Um, it hasn't been covered that well in the press. You know, not only are you know about three hundred and sixty thousand people, which is almost the combined standing armies of France and Germany together, uh, being called up, but usually call-ups uh, that the military expects that eighty percent of people will show up. Now it's one hundred and twenty percent, one hundred and fifty percent. All these people that haven't been called are showing up. People who have aged out of reserve duty are showing up. But that that's just on the military side. On the civilian side, you have complete mobiliza- mobilization as well in terms of people. Everybody wants to do something to help, you know, whether it's in the very beginning bringing, you know, food and even equipment to soldiers uh, or it's helping the families of those who were killed or wounded or kidnapped uh, or just covering for each other. Because when you have so many people, the startups, uh, most startups have a 10 to 20% and it skews to their top people who tends to be tend to be officers um, of one kind or another are at the front. And so, and these companies, they have to perform. They it's very important for them 
that anyone, their customers outside of Israel, basically they, they can say to them, you know, the war is our problem. Don't worry about us. We're going to deliver. And so you have the way to think about it is, you know, there's this Sav Shmonia, this cop concept of order number eight, it's called, which is when you're called up to reserve duty. So there's Tzav Shmone uh, on the military side, but there's also Tzav Shmone on the civilian side. Everybody's called up and feels that way and is acting that way. Uh, so there's unity that you've never seen in this country before. And not only that, it comes from a time when we were so divided. So we basically went from the depths of division to the heights of unity in one day. It already happened on October 7th. The entire uh, uh, apparatus of the protest movement, immediately, including all those people that said they weren't going to serve, they ran to the front. So that's that's tremendous. That's a great place for us to stop uh, because it is really heartwarming. The book is The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Thanks for talking with me today, Saul. Thank you, Renee. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.